This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B-E. That's IXL.com slash B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education and now consult schools on improving their educational design. Oh, that was a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, work shifts, you know, what can I say? (laughs) Greetings, everybody. I'm Frederick Lane. I am an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Before we launch into the substance of today's show, we'd like to give a shout-out to our initial mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be an inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, let's chat. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you on this fine Monday. It is a fine Monday, although the rain clouds are sweeping in, but nonetheless, we'll give people something to distract them a little bit. Our show today is Fi on Goodness, Child Access to Adult Content and Products. So there's a lot to cover today (laughs) in 45 minutes. Um, I do want to let people know that we have uh, show notes that will 
will be or are more extensive than what we'll be able to cover on air. So please check that out on the website and let us know if you have any questions. Yep. So this is episode 18. So that is uh, cybertraps.com slash 18 is the the easy way to get there. And um, you can go check that out. And so as we start this, um, there are some there are some things that are uh, available that are adult um, oriented items that are supposed to be only uh, available to adults, but uh, sometimes it's easier for kids to get in them. So let's start by talking about what is the legal stuff that's out there and what are the illegal things that are out there? Sure. I think that's, that's a great way to start. I mean, all of us are familiar with the fact have age restrictions on what people can buy, right? If your kid walks into a bodega in New York or a convenience store in Washington, the idea is that the adults will check to make sure they're legally entitled to purchase things like cigarettes or alcohol or prescription drugs or what have you. Um, These are all legal substances that can be sold to adults, but for a variety of different reasons, we limit their sale to children obviously. Then there's some other stuff out there that um, comes under the same general category. Um, Certainly online, we've got issues with respect to gambling. Kids are not supposed to be able to walk into casinos and start laying down their money, but they can far too easily do it online as we'll talk. And then of course, adult entertainment content, pornography, um, that, you know, again, there's supposed to be limitations on what kids can buy in stores. But there are very ineffective tools right now, at least in terms of in terms of what kids can access. And so we're going to talk about some of the things, practical things that parents can do to minimize their kids' exposure. Now, these are all legal things. I, I we'll talk briefly about weapons, which is kind of at the far end of all of this. Um, Obviously, those are age-restricted products as well. Um, They're probably the most difficult to get online for kids, but regrettably, not impossible. I mean, that's. I was doing a little bit of research uh, in preparation for the show this morning, and it it is just draw-dropping what kids can get to if they really put their minds to it. Well, and it seems that as as time goes on, there are different ways to get these things that, you know, when we're talking about getting things online, what we're mostly talking about is on the open web or the, you know, the WWW internet. We're not talking about the dark web where those kinds of things do exist. And we're not even going into that category uh, for sake of this conversation. Um, but there are places to go where um, that it's not regulated and anonymity is is key and and those things exist and in those situations it's going to be even more difficult but let's talk about some of the things that are illegal um for example child pornography no matter where it is is illegal yet those things still those things still exist um and so absolutely yeah go ahead. absolutely absolutely jethro i i i would say um and we haven't we haven't really gamed out the rest of our shows but i would say at some point we will want to do an entire show on the dark web and and some of its implications. Um, I do want to touch on it lightly today, just because I think there's some relevant pieces for parents to know. And, you know, in terms of the illegal category, this is where the, the problem of child access does in fact intersect with the dark web. We're talking about things like child pornography, um, which is a subset, by the way, of the broader 
category of obscene materials. And uh, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Again, that's a very deep dive that you can do at some point about the law on that. But the other thing that we're starting to see, and I think it's, it's a real concern for parents, are um, the means by which children can get access to what are referred to as controlled substances in the United States, and then to things which are so new that they're not even on the list yet because they're synthetic uh, compounds that are being developed in different countries. Apparently the leading category, excuse me, the leading uh, distributors are Russia, China, Poland, some of the, shall we say, less well-regulated corners of the world. Um, And then even with things that are identified by the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States, one of the ongoing risks is that if children are trying to purchase these things online, there's a real risk of contamination or um, corruption of the drugs in question. You don't know what you're getting. And so, you know, this this is really at the forefront of what parents need to pay attention to. Well, and, and that's also a piece where even with regular products that you can buy off of Amazon, there's a whole market that is devoted to rip off or copycat or fake um, brands that, you know, it doesn't have the same quality as something else. And certainly there are things that are branded, not as name brand, but um, intentionally different, but they're just lower quality. And you have to be paying attention to do that. I can only imagine something that you're going to take to like ingest <laughs> in your body. Uh, that just sounds totally crazy. So uh, one thing that is really fascinating to me is that over time, we've had a, a shift in in the laws and in just social acceptance about different things. Um, you know, most recently over the past few years, uh, marijuana has become legalized uh, through in many states in the country. <clears throat> when it was not the case before, there's been a decriminalization of possession of uh, marijuana, which has happened also. And when uh, when I was in Alaska as a principal, um, marijuana was legalized there. And there, we had a lot of conversations about how just because marijuana is legal for adults, uh, it does not mean that it's now legal for kids. And the conversation changed from you shouldn't smoke marijuana to you shouldn't steal your parents' marijuana. And it became a much different <laughs> conversation at that point. That's really amusing. Well, and, and, of course, as we're constantly talking about on this show, right, there's the impact of new technology. So now one of the things that people are grappling with is um, electronic cigarettes or vaping. Mm -hmm. And there's an entire industry devoted to drawing in kids with these flavored vapes. And, you know, that's a whole nother area where, again, the law is struggling to keep up with what's going on. Uh, to be fair, Congress is actually trying to do something about that. Um, in uh, at, at the end of 2020, they passed a law that basically banned the online sale of vaping products to kids. And tucked away in that was the idea that the Postal Service is not allowed to deliver those anymore. And a lot of the private carriers are actually stepping up and doing the same thing. All of that being said, if you're ordering something from you know Eastern Europe, it's probably going to come in a package that doesn't identify what's in it, and and so that's that's an ongoing challenge for law enforcement and for parents. For sure. So let's talk about the um, 
how big the problem is and how often uh, things happen. You know, there are various news reports about um, people doing different things. And, um, you know, one thing that, uh, for example, um, at the end of 2020, uh, there's a, there's a report that one in six children steal money from their parents to pay for addictive computer game loot boxes, survey reveals. Um, um, and I think that that, that kind of stuff is, would be considered gambling, but it's not regulated in the same way as gambling. What's the difference between those two? Well, sure. The, the difference really is that there is, um, let's use the technical term, absolutely lousy regulation of apps and the in-app purchases and so forth. And, um, you know, it's in the interest of Google Play and um, Apple to try to crack down on some of the worst abuses, right? Because it makes them look really bad when a kid empties out his parents' bank account that he somehow got access to to buy in-app purchases or mods or upgrades or whatever. They that it just it's bad PR at the very least. Um, but the problem is that this technology is also new, right? And this stuff moves so incredibly quickly. With the gambling industry, I mean, humans have been gambling literally for thousands of years. It's a pretty well-known phenomenon. And of course, in the 19th and 20th century, when casinos developed and you began to get a gambling industry, it got large enough for Congress to actually step in and pass some regulations and so forth. And of course, states regulate casinos pretty heavily. Um, it's hard to lose money at a casino, but it can be done, I guess. <laughs> um, but that being said, uh, we haven't developed the same level of regulatory oversight with respect to these in-app purchases. And one of the real challenges and, and something that parents do need to watch closely is that these are specifically aimed at children. The, the entire ecosystem is designed to suck children in and get them enthusiastic about buying these in-app toys or weapons or whatever. And so there's a lot of concern about whether or not, for lack of a better term, these in-app purchases are being used as a gateway drug to online gambling and, and more traditional gambling products. And I think parents, most parents would say, come on, that's a stretch, Fred, because it's just a game. It's not like real gambling and you're not, you're not, you know, putting in money so that you can win that money back. It's you're getting special items. So there's, there's no, there's no connection there. And that's, that's just being overreactive. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, I think (laughs) there's a lot about my work that's described as overreactive. (laughs) So (laughs) I am not unfamiliar with that charge, but look, it's true, right? If, if a kid wants to buy a new skin, right. For some in-game character, or there is a specific purchase for a thing which will make gameplay better. That's one thing. But a lot of these games are tapping into the psychological aspect of what am I going to get? And so you end up with quote-unquote loot boxes that are randomly generated with unknown contents. And so you're really paying for something you don't know what you're getting. But there's that endorphin rush that accompanies getting something really cool out of the loot box. And I will say, charges of overreaction notwithstanding, that these games are designed from ground up 
to be psychologically compelling in many of the same ways that social media is designed to be sociologically compelling. And I use social, I use social media. I enjoy social media in a bunch of different ways. I have at various times in my life played video games. I get a lot of this. That being said, we're talking about a group of individuals who are minors, who don't have a full range of adult development to handle the psychological pieces of this. You must have seen this in schools, that the way kids react to things is different than most adults. And so the question here really is, to what extent are we throwing our children into the deep end of the psychological pool and asking them to cope with these very, very sophisticated means of manipulating their behavior? Yeah. And last thing I'll say on the video games, then we can move on. I do like playing video games. And in many video games now, you get to a point to where it it is no longer beneficial to play without pain. And at that point, right. when and and I as as an adult with a mostly developed brain, I can make that decision <laughs> myself. But I don't believe that my kids can make that same decision because they, and the other thing is when I was younger, many of the video games that we played, you could actually beat and finish and there was an end to it. Yes. And and there was something, there were some things that enabled you to play it longer, uh, you know, different secrets you could find or whatever, beating a time or something like that. But now many of the games are never ending in that there's there's no end to it. It is just right. continuing to get more and more stuff and get better and better. And I think that that's, that's another thing that you have to realize as you're introducing these video games to your kids is that if if you do that, then you're committing to to dealing with the conversation of them saying, I need this so that I can be better because I can't get in the top one anymore. Um, not to mention all the ranking that goes in there also. I mean, we won't even get into that. We should move on. <laughs> we could get stuck here. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. I mean, look, the, the development of open world games changed the entire dynamic. And it does actually tie into some of the conversation we're having today. Because one of the things that, that parents often ask is, how are my kids finding out about these things online? How are they finding out about the, the games, the in-game purchases? Or more dangerously, how are they finding out about online drug purchases or the ability to order alcohol, you know, for a party when you know my husband and I are away for whatever reason? And there's a bunch of different mechanisms, obviously, by which kids find this stuff out. Peer groups, siblings, <laughs> these are old, old uh, methods of, of learning things you might not want your younger kids to learn. But I think that we really need to start paying more attention to the role of social media influencers on our children, because some of the things, you know, when people go through the show notes, they'll see a couple of the headlines that we threw in there that are, are cases that arose directly from kids seeing influencers do X. You know, my favorite example, we get back to the video gaming. Let's, let's just dump on games today. Um, so, you know, these kids want to do these long runs in their games because that's part of the whole esports e- ethos. How long can you sit there and, and just continue your gameplay? And one of the tools for that are super high caffeine drinks. Well, 
you know, <laughs> there's a physiological cost to caffeine as much as I you know, need my two pots of tea in the morning to get going. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you triple that or quadruple that, you're talking about heart rate issues, you're talking about blood pressure issues, yada, yada. But, you know, the really, really popular YouTube uh, gameplay people or the Instagram gamers, they're out there telling kids, this is how you succeed. This is how you get up to the rankings. Um, and then beyond that, of course, we've got just straight up advertising for things like alcohol, gambling, cigarettes, all the rest of that. It's, you know, we would be, um, would be naive not to think the kids don't see that. And, and that they're not paying attention to it too. And, and seeing the kind of people who are portrayed as using those things, not to mention, um, how they're portrayed in TV shows and movies and mm. things like that, that, right. you know, that it's, um, I saw a study recently that said that one, it, this was in 2019 or 2020. So recent, it said one in every five or so, and I don't remember the exact thing. I'll see if I can find it and put in the show notes, but it said one in every five uh, movies portrays smoking in a positive light. And when I saw that, I was, I was dumbfounded. I thought, no way we are so past smoking as being a positive thing. Um, but then I watched the next two or three movies that I watched and they had um, a positive portrayal of smoking. And I thought, man, I guess I just have been desensitized and I'm not paying attention to it. Right. But still, there's a lot of that that, um, that promotes it. And, and we need to think about that as we, as we talk with our kids about these things and, and what that means. So the other, the other part of it is, is that's how they get exposed to it, but then how they actually get it. And this is the part that um, is, to be honest, is quite scary because no matter what you do to keep track and pay attention to what your kids are doing, it has always been possible for them to go find stuff that we don't want them to get, <laughs> you know, the, the internet is a new thing, but it's not it's not like it has changed kids natures and now they're going to look for it. I mean, when all of us were kids, we, we knew who the people were that we could go and get stuff from. And if we didn't, then we could certainly find out who they were pretty quickly. Yeah. And none of this is breaking new territory, right? Mm -hmm. I, obviously you're absolutely right, Jethro. And it's a good observation. You know, <laughs> even though I'm a, you know, half generation older than you. Yeah you could get cigarettes in middle school without breaking a sweat. <laughs> you, you, everybody knew who the druggies were in the high school. If you just had to ask, and it was not that complicated. There's the reason we're talking about this today, I think is that the internet, um, the internet changes the the degree to which kids are exposed to things, I think, in their face. I think the situation you and I are talking about is we may have been peripherally aware of what was going on when we were kids, but in order to get this stuff, we would actually have to ask someone. We'd have to really dig around a little bit. And I think the reason this show is important is because the internet puts so much of this stuff directly in front of kids. And there are disturbing new technologies that allow kids to purchase this material. And we don't necessarily have the right mechanisms in place to regulate the delivery. And we'll talk about that at the end when we're talking about solutions. But, you know, for instance, you know, 
again, we've got facilitate, excuse me, we've got algorithms, we've got influencers, we have unmonitored Facebook groups, you know, where kids can go into I, the one that really blew me away was the a uh, few years ago, like five years ago, the police got a couple of 15 year olds together and had them try to purchase a gun. And these 15 year olds were able to buy a gun on a Facebook group in 15 minutes. It's just, I mean, it's staggering. Yeah. So the, a couple other things to add to that social media aspect. When we started uh, installing fil- or um, monitoring software at the school to keep track of what kids were doing, um, one thing that kids quickly found out was not monitored were the comments in Google Docs mm-hmm. um, documents right. and spreadsheets. Yep. So they would they would post things in the comments. And if you... You, I mean, it saves all that, so it's not like it gets deleted. But if if you didn't know, you weren't paying attention. You can't go search through the comments of hundreds of documents that are created every day in a school. And so, kids would be able to to have conversations, to do bullying, to um, mm-hmm. talk about where to um, meet, to to do deals for drugs and things like that. I mean, that stuff was happening, and it's it's not out of the realm of possibility for that to happen. But the other thing with that is that in these groups or on social media, um, numerous times I had kids show me how they knew that somebody else was high at school because they showed a video of them in the morning smoking marijuana before they came to school or drinking before they came to school and being able to see that you know, and they would just post it on their social media, but they would think they're posting it in groups where, where, you know, other people won't, won't always see it, but sometimes they're very brazen about it. So kids who are following other kids can see that and kids who, who know that that's not what they want to do can unfollow those people, (laughs) but it still goes around the school. It still goes around everywhere and people can, can see it. And one thing that I heard about that I was never able to verify was that on, um, on a on some place like eBay, you could go buy something and know that it was coming with drugs included in it. So you'd be buying something that was labeled as like a Xbox 360 or whatever. But if you then took it apart inside, the drugs would be stashed and that's what you're actually paying for. And so again, I haven't been able to verify that, but that was a rumor that kids were sharing that that's how they could get a hold of stuff online. That's really interesting. I'll have to dig into that a little bit because uh, that totally makes sense to me, mm-hmm. but it's not something I had run across. I mean, you know, look, the the video thing is hysterical because when I talk to teacher groups about um, potential cyber misconduct, I characterize those things as selfie incriminations, right? where, yeah. <laughs> where you're actually like literally handing evidence to your administrator or to the police or what have you. And it's it's really remarkable. I think our culture is becoming so infused with this mobile technology that people record everything, even if it's criminally li- even if it makes them criminally liable. Remarkable stuff. Yeah. Anyway, I think um, real quickly, as as you said, Jethro, we probably don't have time to dig into this too deeply, but one of the areas that parents should at least be aware of is the so called dark web. And 
basically, you know, the, the framework of the internet is that there's the quote unquote surface web, which we're all familiar with, right? If you go into Google, if you do Bing, if you do whatever, and you do a search, that search is only occurring within about 4% of the content that's online. It's remarkable how much stuff is actually not indexed. The quote unquote deep web is this non-indexed material, whether it's government files, legal documents, all of the stuff that corporations have networked and stored and blah, blah, blah. So none of that is routinely available. You have to be authorized to get access to it and so forth. The dark web is where things get really hairy pretty quickly. And the point of the dark web is that you need an encrypted browser in order to access the sites that are located on the dark web. Um, you know, obvious example is Tor or Freenet or some of these other things. And the point of these is that they mask people's use of these websites and make it very difficult for law enforcement to trace, although I should say not impossible. And because of the level of encryption that is used, it's common for these websites to sell highly dangerous products and materials. This is one of the leading locations, for instance, of child pornography. Uh, there was a very famous website in the early 2010s called uh, Silk Road, which was one of the leading uh, purveyors of really dangerous drugs of one kind or another. The DEA and Homeland Security did shut that down, but it's reappeared in various manifestations. So a lot of the activity is still out there. And the thing about the dark web that is um, challenging in a lot of ways for law enforcement is that obviously people are not laying down their credit card um, in order to purchase stuff. But you see these alternative payment methods. And the remarkable thing is there's really nothing preventing kids from using them. So, for instance, cryptocurrency, most famously, of course, Bitcoin. But as I was reading through these articles this morning, Jethro, I was I was stunned to be reminded that really a kid doesn't need much more than a hundred bucks in cash and he can go buy a credit card, a, a reusable credit card at a Walgreens or, you know, uh, any of your local drugstores. And that gives the kid a usable credit card number. That's basically like a burner phone. It's not traceable to the kid. And so, you know, that it's, a, it's really, it's, it's constantly startling to me how many different ways minors can get access to electronic payments like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that kind of reloadable credit card, for example, is, is a great way for someone to, to have this secret thing that nobody in their family knows about. And that, you know, if you're a parent and your kid has a debit card, then you can monitor their bank account most likely and see what they're spending money on. But if, if they go out and get their own, then you're out of the loop and it's going to be contained to them. Um, and so again, having conversations, talking about it, having that supervision over what your kids are doing, those are, those are all important. Um, it seems like the easy way to do this, which is how we do it in the analog world, is to just make it so that kids can't buy certain things. And the challenges is that on the internet, you don't, you don't have to be truthful with your age and it's easy to, to get around that. Um, and so <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and there have been 
there have also been times where we've encouraged people to be anonymous on the internet, especially children, um, so that they can protect their real identity. But I think that has this unintended consequence of of teaching them how to be anonymous and be uh, when you're anonymous, then you don't feel like you have to act the way that you would always act. So, um, so, so what are some other issues with age verification on, on the internet? Well, this is, this is one of my favorite topics actually Jethro, because it really does tie into the rise of the digital mob. One of the things that I've been looking at is that the point of the internet, we don't think of this so much, but the point of the internet is not human to human conversation, it's machine to machine conversation. So it doesn't matter which human being is using the machine. So there's no linkage between human identity and the communication that's taking place across the internet. And remarkably, there was a New Yorker cartoonist back in 1984 who captured the ethos of this. He drew this picture of a dog sitting at a computer, somehow talking to another dog. And the, the dog at the computer says, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, right? <laughs> Which has come to have some kind of different meaning with respect to guys and treating women online, but that's another conversation. Look, the problem is age verification is a tricky topic from the get-go, right? Um, obviously buttons and verification screens are ludicrously useless. Anybody who can press a button can say they're 18 when they go to a website, but Let's step back a bit and look more at the social issues, um, which you know actually is interesting, I think, because um, there are a number of organizations, right, that are deep into genealogy and dealing with these kinds of, of uh, relationships and ages and so forth. One of the things that I learned when I was writing American Privacy is that when the social security system was set up in 1933, 1934, there was a very active debate about at the time about whether or not the social security number would become a de facto national ID. And some people at the time pushed for a national birth certificate system. So the idea would be that Washington would issue all of the birth certificates in the, in the United States. And that actually could be used to verify identity. Let's keep in mind that we were between the world wars and fascism was on the rise in Europe and the pushback against that was tremendous. You know, the idea that there'd be some kind of centralized identity database was a total non-starter. But because birth certificates are local or state issued, there's no way to use that data to determine someone's age. And now we've come to a situation where that might potentially be useful. Obviously, we give social security numbers to children, so um, you know it's a little hard to use that, and and they're a little bit vulnerable. Um, so you know that's not a great system. There was an attempt back in the late '90s under the Child Online Protection Act to require websites that have um, material harmful to minors to use credit cards to verify age, and that failed for two reasons. I mean. Well, it gets shot down for legal reasons. But even before that, the credit card companies were saying, no way, <laughs> we don't want the headache. We, we don't want to be in that business. <laughs> well, they'll they'll take the website money. They just don't want to be responsible That's for right. keeping kids out. <laughs> yeah, we want money. So we don't want to be responsible for verifying people's ages because 
and, it, and we've it just doesn't matter to up, them. Money's money. <laughs> we've just summed up the 20th and 21st century. Um, but the issue there, too, is that, um, as we talked about, kids can get credit cards. And many parents give kids credit cards when they're minors as a way of teaching them financial responsibility and so on and so forth. And that's all great. But that means that you can't use that as a bright line between adulthood and non-adulthood. Yeah, and and not just that, but there are um, there's there's no incentive for anybody who's who's dealing with that money to do anything about that because oh, of course not. you know right if kids can can spend more then that's that's good for our bottom line and that's a really cynical way to look at it but at the same time that's not that's not too far off so people do want to protect children the government does um the companies who are doing it do and we've got an interview coming up this thursday um with joan whose last name just blanked on me joan irvine joan irvine (laughs) thank you um and she's going to talk i mean she's been in this business for decades helping companies um protect themselves by making sure that they're verifying age appropriately um or to the to the best of their ability and so we'll you'll hear more about her later but um yeah but absolutely there's, there's a benefit to those companies to make sure that kids are not accessing their content absolutely and and just to give a shout out um i met joan when i was researching obscene profits back in the late uh, 1990s and at the time she was the head of the association of sites advocating child protection which is asacp.org and with with her leadership as she'll explain they came up with a quote-unquote restricted to adults uh web label which has been incorporated into parental control software uh, child protection software and so forth. And as a matter of fact, if you go to rtalabel.org, which is a subset of the ASACP site, you can see um, a variety of organizations and software tools that parents can use to help protect their kids from adult content. Um, she's going to talk about the fact that she has been in the early stages of trying to do that for the cannabis industry, which if they get federal um, legalization, will develop an even stronger online presence than they already have. And one of the goals of the industry, again, is to minimize the purchase of adults-only products from their websites. I really do think that is so important um, because it, it, it will require um, parents and companies both paying attention to be able to prevent these things uh, from getting into the hands of kids. So um, uh, in the show notes, you'll find more information about um, some laws um, that are that are happening and plans, you know, for making things less accessible, software services, things like that. But let's talk about what parents can do um, to kind of close us out here and talk about the different things that that need to happen. As we've said, like every single podcast we've done, like you've got to, you've got to monitor your kids and talk to them about it. So first and foremost, already those things are going to be um, something that you, you should just be doing. And if you've listened to anything we've said before, you know, that's where we're going to start for sure. That's, that's a great way to put it. I think Jethro, we can just pre-record some of these. Yeah, we should. <laughs> what can parents and, do? <laughs> right. And, and you've file. got your little, you've got your stream deck. You can just press play. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, 
everything you know it, it's fun to do it on a, with a fresh perspective and i think you know in terms of let's break this down right let's let's separate out the electronic stuff like pornography or child pornography that's that's one set of problems but i think a lot of what we've been talking about today are physical objects right that need to come from point a to point b point b being your home or your child's bedroom and theoretically that should be a little bit easier to monitor and control and if necessary prevent but because we're talking about the internet a lot of these same rules that you and i talk about still apply as you say monitor the use of devices and our our tagline here is it's not surveillance it's supervision which is a different you know it is not this illicit hidden uh manipulative way of dealing with your children it's a parent saying to the child we want you to be safe we want you to grow up healthy and blah 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 and this is part of our job as parents to make sure that, that happens and if you need any legal reassurance you own the device and you are potentially liable for its use so that that's the starting place yeah so the other thing that would be wise to do is to sign up for some sort of delivery notification and ups usps fedex they all offer this so that you can see what is coming to your house which is different than just having the tracking number so um you know i got i got something in the mail the other day um not in the mail a package delivered I didn't know that it was coming because the vendor never or the supplier never sent me a uh, um, a tracking number. So I didn't know when it would get here. But because I have I'm signed up for I think it came UPS, I'm signed up for their delivery service. I know that when something is coming and they send me an email every time it's coming, USPS sends me the image of every piece of mail that I'm getting. And so you can you can pay attention to that and monitor it and and know what's going on and that i think would be a good thing for parents to do especially if you know they're a little late and these things are already done um and their kids are already doing some of these things uh having that in place would at least give you an idea of what's coming to your house and from where and you know there there are still ways around it you might even want to install a smart doorbell but in the uh delivery instructions the kid could say you know put it behind the gate on the side yard instead of at the front door. And then the UPS driver, whoever would never know or would never go up to the front door to do that. So, you know, there are ways around all these things, but do your best to keep track of, of what's going on and what's coming to your house in the through delivery services. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. Um, one of the things that's interesting about our current uh, delivery ecosystem is that even if a delivery is is starting with uh, DHL or UPS or FedEx or something like that, almost all of these companies contract with the postal service for the last mile. I, I, you know, the, the the traditional door-to-door delivery that makes the USPS so great. I'm a total fanboy of the postal service. <laughs> Don't get me started. But the thing is that because of that, if you're signed up for USPS.com, uh, delivery notifications, you will get a notification and tracking number of any package that they are handling to get to your doorstep. Doesn't matter who ordered it because it's address based. And that's the real key for parents is you should have some idea of what's being delivered 
to your home. And, you know, related to that, you know, information is only as good as your willingness to act on it. And this is the hard part, I think, a lot of times, um, you know, depending on your personal family dynamics and relationship with your children, there's, there's a need to have the confidence to actually say something if you're worried as a parent, or if there are things that you think um, you need to discuss with your child. And that can be what their browser history shows. It can be um, what what packages are showing up in your household? Maybe you're concerned about the friends that they're hanging out with because there's some chatter you hear that makes you a little bit nervous. But you know the 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 next step, the last mile of parenting, if you will, is the ability to actually say to your child, "We need to talk about this because this concerns me." Yeah, and in my experience working with parents about their kids struggling in so many ways so many times the parents default immediately to you're in trouble for this and that sets up a confrontation and encourages kids to lie and not be truthful with their parents and i just can't stress enough that a conversation is different than a consequence and you need to have a conversation so you know what's going on and the consequences they'll need to happen for sure but that can't be the focus. It can't be focusing on punishing your kids for making these mistakes. The focus has to be knowing what's going on and finding a way to get your kids to be honest with you, because that will save you so much time later on. And I just, the last thing I want to say today is this, um, the story of a kid who uh, was totally open and honest with his parents. And when he got in trouble, he, he was able to just tell them the truth of what happened and the growth that that family had was just amazing every time it happened. Obviously, because I was interacting with this kid, he wasn't perfect, but because he could tell his parents, it, it made everything else easier for everybody. And I had another, uh, I mean, these are like archetypes, right? So another family the kid could do no wrong. So when the kid did get in trouble, the parents would swoop in and say, my kid would never do that. But I've got a video of him punching a kid in the face. Like, yes, your kid would do that. Here's the video evidence. And then I have other families where the, the parents, um, it, all they do, as soon as they hear that the principal's calling, they just start yelling and swearing at the kid. And that kid's not going to say anything because they can't get a word in edgewise to begin with. So most effective, have the conversation, save the consequences for later. They need to happen. And that's, that's all fine and dandy, but be able to have the conversation first. That's the most important thing. Those are great points, Jethro. Let me close out with a couple of quick points and then we'll wrap up our episode. Okay. I do want to let people know that a lot of the conversation that Jethro and I are having today is um, based on raising cyberethical kids. And in a few weeks, we're going to have an audio version of that book that people will be able to purchase, which will really help guide those kinds of conversations in important ways. So we look well, forward not to sharing just, with you. Not just an audio version of the book, but a, a different approach to it that I think is actually really intriguing. So I'm really excited to, uh, to talk about that also and share that with everybody, because I think it actually turned out really well. I'm very impressed with that, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love on-screen 
reviews. They're great. Um, Hopefully the audience will agree with us when we release that. The last thing I think from a uh, advisory point of view that shows up time and again in all of these different situations um, is the need for parents to be aware, not just of the money their kids are spending, but of their own finances. Because Sadly, some kids do get addicted to whatever substance it is that they're purchasing or whatever game they're playing, and they're driven to get money however they can. And so you want to know about that as soon as possible. One of the things you can do from a practical perspective is to put alerts, transaction alerts on your accounts either credit card or bank statement, so that if a purchase crosses a certain threshold, maybe amount per day or whatever, you get a notification and you can look into what's going on. Again, the key with all of these things is to prevent damage from getting truly catastrophic, whether it's in terms of your child's health or your own finances, as the case may be. A couple of things I'll give a shout out to. There's some great material on American Addiction Centers, or the DEA website, Get Smart About Drugs. Whatever the issue is, just do a little research and you can find great stuff out there. Yeah, really important stuff. Glad we took the time to talk about this today. I think it's something that um, we all need to pay attention to and know what's going on so that we can be that adult there to help our kids make better choices. And we certainly hope that you will listen to Joan's episode when we release it on Thursday. There'll be a lot more good information for parents about the labeling process and the role that it plays with parental controls. Yeah. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Let's take a fork in it. (laughs) It's done. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.